So Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to apply these words in a way that gives us the kind of life you came to give us. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, as you've uh, heard already, this, uh, this week we had the Vacation Bible Adventure here at the church. We had over about 400 kids were part of that, and 250 volunteers were needed to pull all of that off, and it was just a great, great week. But I do want to thank the volunteers. I know there's some of you here. If you helped out at VBA this week, would you please stand so we can thank you guys? It was a great week, and that's what these t-shirts are about. Well, when I was a kid, I remember for one of my birthdays, my mother found these candles that when I blew them out, within about a second, they would relight themselves. So I blew them out over and over and over and over again. It was so much fun for my mom. <laughs> so frustrating for, for me. And that's what we see in the story that Dana just read. The more the religious leaders try to hold the Christians down, the more they just keep popping back up stronger than ever before. It is the first game of whack-a-mole in history. Right? Put them in jail, an angel sets them free. Tell them to stop talking about Jesus, they preach all the more. Whip them, and they leave rejoicing. And what you need to understand is that being flogged was no small thing. Chunks of skin and muscle would have been torn off of their bodies. Many people died from it, and yet they leave rejoicing. The Romans had a saying that expressed their frustration with Christians. The blood of Christians is seed. The more you oppress, even kill them, the more they just come back, the more they just grow stronger than ever before. How are you going to stop that kind of unstoppable life? And wouldn't you like to have that kind of life welling up inside of you? That no matter what tries to stomp you down, you just pop right back up. So much better than being depressed or bored or just kind of downcast. I was talking a little while ago to a doctor who I'll call Sarah, and we were comparing jobs, and she said, Scott, I have an advantage over you. I work in surgery, so everyone I work with is asleep. And I said, oh, Sarah. <laughs> it's a little that way for me as well. I was joking. You guys aren't, you guys aren't sleepy, most of you. Because you know that Jesus is the red bull of our lives. He wakes us up and gives us his irrepressible life, even in the hardest of sufferings. And I'll give you an example in a minute. But first, I want to examine just some of the verses in this passage to kind of look at what are the ingredients of this irrepressible, unstoppable life within us. And if you have a Bible, you may want to just follow along or on the screen. Two weeks ago, Dana preached about how in Acts chapter 3, the disciples healed a crippled man. In chapter 4, they're thrown in jail for that by the religious leaders. Because, you know, you can see how irritating that would be. Can't have people getting healed right and left. Religious leaders hate that kind of thing. Well, then they let the disciples out on the condition that they never talk about Jesus again. Which had about the same effect as when I tell my kids to clean their room. <laughs> Nothing. So we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Kind of a contradiction, isn't it? Right? No one dared join them, and yet they grew. What this is driving at is the first ingredient of irrepressible life within us, and that is to be fully devoted to Jesus. Not to an ideology, not to a political or religious cause, that just leads to zealotry, but to the person of Jesus. It's a relationship, and that makes it different than anything else. And at first, people were drawn to the Christian community. 
There were miracles. There, they held all things in common, so nobody went hungry. Lots of reasons to join. But then the persecution started, and folks started to bail, except the fully devoted. Because you see, there were some people who were actually attracted by the way that Christians were suffering and had joy even in the middle of the persecution. Some people wanted that. They wanted to be fully devoted. It's sort of like you guys here today. See, when I was in California, whenever it rained, nobody came to church. But here, when it's sunny, nobody comes to church, <laughs> except you guys. You're here on a hot, sunny, you are the faithful core. You are the committed. And I like preaching in the summer for this reason. I can parse Greek words. I'm gonna, I can preach for 45 minutes, and I'm gonna. And you're just going to love it. You're just going to eat it because you're the faithful core. That's who is joining. Folks who wanted to be fully devoted. I'm not going to preach 45 minutes. Don't worry. See, Christianity always grows best when it is being persecuted. In fact, if a government really wanted to get rid of Christianity, do you know what the best thing it can do is? Sponsor it. Serious. Give it a little government money. It kills it just flat, right? Like a lot of things. Okay, let's keep reading. That I should not have said, so just ignore that. It was not in the notes. I shouldn't have said that. Send the emails. Let's keep reading. Then the high priest and all his associates were filled with jealousy. Why? Well, because suddenly everyone wants to go be with Jesus rather than their thing. So this is about their power, their prestige, their careers. They feel threatened. So they put the apostles in jail again. But then an angel opened the door and let them out and said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. This new life that's not like the old life. This new life that cannot be suppressed, cannot be kept down by anything. Tell them that. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail, we're talking about Jesus, are standing in the temple courts talking about Jesus. And you can just at this point see the blood start to boil in the religious leader's veins. Like, ooh, right? No matter what I do, you know, Elmer Fudd, that wascally rabbit, right? Like, no matter what I do, I cannot stop this. It's sort of like how I feel about the bed frame that my wife and I have in our bedroom. It's got these sharp, jagged little points that stick out like daggers. Because, you know, that's exactly what you want on furniture that people walk to in the dark, right? <laughs> like, that just makes so much love to meet the guy who designed that. No matter what I do, I try really hard, but no matter what I do, I can't avoid stubbing my toe on it over and over again, which, because I'm a pastor, provokes a response of prayer and praise. <laughs> it's a pastor thing. You so wouldn't understand it. Dana has the same thing, right? right? I can't stop the bed frame from assaulting me. The religious leaders could not stop the Christians from talking about Jesus, which brings me to the second ingredient of irrepressible life. And that is we march to Jesus rhythms and nobody else's. Last week, our guest preacher, Mark Laberton, talked about avoiding the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. Because if we buy into our culture's rhythm of keeping up with the Joneses, that just leads to a lot of stress and anxiety. If we seek only pleasure and comfort, that leads to fear that something's going to disrupt that and to boredom because another word for safe is bored. But if we march to Jesus rhythm, it brings irrepressible life. <laughs> That's why Peter says to the religious leaders, we must obey God rather than human beings. They take their cues not from what the culture says or what their own desires say, but from what God says to them through Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. What rhythms did you march to this week? Our cultures? Your own desires? What might it look like to march to Jesus instead? 
Maybe, maybe that means avoiding consumerism, deliberately living below our means so we can save and give more. Maybe it means telling a hard truth in love to a friend who's doing something that's hurting themselves or others. Maybe it means being part of Jesus' rescue mission somehow. Back when I was in California, I, I knew a man named Trevor who went to church but never really experienced God's presence, kind of, I don't know if he's real or not. And Trevor was obsessed with his career and making more money and living for the next toy he could buy, the next exotic vacation. And he, but he was also kind of bored and anxious and really unhappy in his job and all kinds of stuff. So I invited him to go on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And he said, no, I don't want to spend the money, and besides, I'd rather go to Hawaii with my friends and have fun than that. But I gave him a lot of pastoral encouragement, a.k.a. guilt, right? And eventually he went. Well, he was assigned to do social work, which is not what he wanted. He wanted to do sports ministries. And for a week, his job was to help out with mentally disabled kids. And there was this one kid there who he couldn't talk, he drooled all the time, couldn't control his body, and Trevor just really bonded with this kid. Would play games with him, you know, wrestle with him, all kinds of stuff. And the kid would look at Trevor with just admiration and joy. And there was this kind of weird expression on Trevor's face I'd never seen there before called a smile. And whenever Trevor would, every morning when Trevor would go to the village, the kids would all run out toward him and they'd shout his name, Trevor, Trevor, and he'd have one on each arm and one on his back and one hanging on to the front of him, right? And it was just, it was just so fun to watch. So I said to him, you know, Trevor, when I am an old man, I am going to remember the look on your face when those kids piled on top of you. And it looked like, it looked like you were designed, doing what you were designed to do. I'm going to remember that forever. And he kind of started to tear up, and he said, stop it, man, you're going to make me cry. Like, that's what pastors do, they make you cry. And he said, I think I know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I think I'm supposed to be a teacher. So when he got back, he started a process that eventually led him to switch careers and become a teacher, which is what he is today. Marching to the rhythms of our culture and his own desires left him bored, frustrated, anxious about his job, but living to the unforced rhythms of Jesus' grace was harder. He had to make some sacrifices, and yet it led to this irrepressible life welling up inside of him. Okay, let's keep reading. Peter continues his little speech to the religious leaders, and he said, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Except the Greek word he uses there, see, I'm using Greek, the Greek word he uses there is not cross, it's tree. It's, and it's very significant, and it brings me to the third ingredient of irrepressible life, and that is it's scandalous. It's scandalous. And here's why. See, in, back in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Peter goes out of his way to use the word tree about Jesus. He's pointing to the scandal of the cross, which in that culture was the most shameful form of execution. Only the worst criminals got it. This is one of the reasons that Muslims don't believe Jesus is God. How could a pure God die such a shameful death? And there's an irony here that I think challenges us, because according to the religious kind of ideas of, that, of their day, but also of ours, that God primarily wants to hang out with nice people, according to that, Jesus himself would be excluded from church. Sort of like the old story of a homeless man who tried to get into this kind of very uptight kind of church, and the usher said, I'm sorry, you don't belong here, you know, you, you can't come in. So the homeless guy left, and as he did, he heard God say, oh, don't worry about it, I've been trying to get into that church for years. <laughs> See, that, kind of, that hurts, doesn't it? That, that kind of nicey, nice religion leads to boredom and spiritual death. 
But Jesus leads to a scandalously dynamic life. Because in Jesus, God took on our sin, our shame, so that we could be forgiven. God brought an unclean you and an unclean me to an unclean cross where we were made clean for the very first time in our lives. See, playing at religion leaves us just bored. But the scandalous love of Jesus that goes after the lost, the lonely, the alienated, the marginalized, that brings irrepressible life. So Peter goes on. And he says to them, you killed him, but God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Which brings me to the last ingredient of irrepressible life, and that is be about what God is doing, not our own agendas. Because see, our agendas are fragile, fleeting, and frail, and by no means guaranteed to succeed. But God's purposes can't be stopped. So if we're about that, if we're going where God's going, we're going to have more joy because we're going to get there. And by pointing to the resurrection, Peter here is saying to the religious leaders, look, guys, guys, there's more going on here than your power, your career, your prestige. God is on the move to accomplish his bigger purposes, and you can't stop that, not even by death Jesus was raised from the dead. And you see it in the next verses when a man named Gamaliel starts talking about two revolutionary leaders, Theodos and Judas, who led these movements, but they were killed, and their movement came to nothing. Unlike Christians, their blood was not seed. Their purposes could be stopped. So Gamaliel says, therefore I advise you, leave these men, the disciples, alone. Let them go. For if their purpose is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting God. The secret to contentment is to major on what God is doing and to minor on what we are doing. Because if we're only about ourselves, we're going to be subject to misery. Because, you know, what if something doesn't go our way? What if we don't get what we want? But if we are about God's bigger purposes, yes, we're going to face hardships. Yes, we're going to face setbacks, heartache, all of that. But we can have hope because God's purposes go marching on. And this is true even in the hardest of times. You know, it's interesting to me that this story begins with a miracle. The angel gets him out of prison. But it ends with no miracle. They end up being flogged nearly to death. And yet they're rejoicing. And here's why. I think they understood this principle. They understood that even when God did the miracle, that just wasn't for their happiness. That it was he was doing something bigger in that miracle, advancing his kingdom. And they also understood that when they did not get the miracle that maybe they wanted, God was still at work. God didn't cause that, them to be flogged. That wasn't God's fault. That was the religious leaders. But he could pull good out of it and advance his purposes through it and in spite of it. That's why it says they left rejoicing. They had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They're not rejoicing in their suffering. They're rejoicing that they suffered for the purposes of Jesus, which is not hamster wheel suffering. that just goes around and around and doesn't go anywhere. See, suffering with Jesus is different than without. Because he puts a supernatural life within us that just wells up no matter what. And they knew that God specially is snatching good out of the jaws of evil. He took death on a cross and turned it into our forgiveness. So they knew that what God does is he compels suffering to mean, to matter, to have purpose, to have a point. And he brings good out of it. That's why they rejoice. Now compare them to the religious leaders. They had everything. The disciples are suffering. The religious leaders had all the power, all the prestige. And yet they're frustrated, furious, jealous. Who's happier? See, I can't tell you if the stock market is going to go up or down. I can't tell you if your kids are going to get, get in that great college or have the right friends. I can't tell you if you're going to get married or not. I can't tell you if you're going to beat that health crisis or not. 
But what I can tell you with absolute certainty is that God's plan for you and for this world will not be stopped. They will go marching on. And even if we die, we just go to be with him, which is ultimate healing. And see, this is where we get heroic courage. You can get courage from two ways. One, defiance. The second is hope. Defiance is the way of our culture. I can beat this. I can overcome this. I believe in me. Well, good for you. But see, here's the problem. Sometimes really bad things happen that we can't overcome. And that's not how Jesus found courage. The Bible says, For courage, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus found courage to go to the cross, not through defiance. It was hope. Knowing that God was on the move and his purposes could not be stopped. I may be killed, but God will raise me to new life. It was for the joy set before him, the hope. That's what gave him courage. And what was that joy that he could not have, even in heaven, unless he went through the suffering? Well, it was you, and it was me. See, it's hope that God's purposes will prevail. It's hope that God is going to grab that pain, that setback, that disappointment by the throat, shake the tar of it, and command it to yield up a blessing. That is what gives us courage. Recently read a story about a young couple in Seattle who were living together. And the woman started going to church and found the message of Jesus' love very, very compelling. So she said to her boyfriend, I've been going to church, and I think we should stop sleeping together. And her boyfriend said, I think you should stop going to church. <laughs> and she said, no, I think we should both go to church. So they did, and they both ended up being convinced that Jesus offered them a bigger life than what they were following. So they put Jesus in charge and got married. A little while later, she was on her bike and got hit by a car who then just left the scene and left her for dead. Fortunately, someone called an ambulance. But her spine was broken, her spleen had exploded, and she was in a coma for a long time. Eventually, though, she came out of the coma, and one of the first things she asked for was to talk to her pastor. And on the way over to the hospital, the pastor was wondering, are they mad at God? Do they even believe he exists? Where are they? But when he got there, she started to talk about Jesus, not in a cheesy way, but just in a very genuine way. And she said, you know, I sometimes wonder, where is Jesus? Where was Jesus when this happened? But I figure he didn't cause it. The guy who hit me did that. And I can already see how he's using it for good. She said, you know, I'm still kind of mentally slow. I, I can only take a few steps. They had to shave my head to examine the head wound, and now I don't like my bangs. But you know what? I figured Jesus felt worse on the cross. And he must love me a lot to have gone through all of that. And I've been able to talk to everyone around here about Jesus. The doctors, the nurses, my physical therapist, they all say, geez, nobody gets a break from this gal. And she says, they'll say to me, are you depressed? And I say, well, of course I'm depressed. Duh. But then I talk to Jesus about it, and that helps. And she said, I'm also learning how much my husband really loves me. And her husband was standing right there. And she said, you know, before he met Jesus, he was so selfish. Not quite sure how he felt about that, but... I said, now, you know, we pray together. He sleeps in the bed next to me. He has not slept in our bed at home for 11 weeks, nor will he until I get home. And the husband said, you know, she's right. I am selfish. But Jesus is changing me in part through this. And he said, I knew, that we, I knew that we had hope when she came out of the coma, and the first thing she started talking about was Jesus, and then she asked for some funfetti cake, which is cake decorated with sort of candy, confetti-like decorations on it. He said, when she wanted funfetti cake, I figured we were going to be okay. Okay, she's in a world of pain, right? 
And yet the life that is welling up from within her is overpowering the pain. Yes, it hurts. Yes, she's depressed sometimes, but those things do not have the last word. She is fully devoted to Jesus, marching to his rhythms, not the culture's or her pain. Her joy is scandalous in the face of what she is trying to endure. And she has courage not because she's defiant or self-reliant, but because she has hope that Jesus is on the move and nothing, nothing can interfere with what he's doing. The enemy can try to blow her candle out, but Jesus will relight it every single time. So then how can you find a little bit more of this irrepressible life this week? Maybe it's to be a little more devoted to Jesus. Maybe it's to find ways to march to his rhythms, not the culture's. Or embrace the scandalous, counterculture, way, Jesus' way of life. And have hope, have trust that Jesus is on the move and his good purposes cannot be stopped. Yes, there may be discouragement. Yes, there may be setback. Yes, there may be heartache. And though that, but though that wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And his purposes cannot be stopped. See, I'm with the Apostle Paul when he says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons... Neither present, nor future, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to sever us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in that, there is unstoppable, irrepressible, unbeatable, cannot be put out light. So Jesus, that is supernatural thing. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would place that life within us this week. And Lord, ask that you would help it to well up within us in a way that others notice, and we will point to you as the reason that it's so. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.